pastor here at the Gospel Tabernacle. And maybe just a, to take a deep breath, even if you've been following Jesus for a while and you visit a new church, it can feel uncomfortable. And so that may be you today. And let me just tell you, you can take a deep breath. We're like the most laid back people ever. And most of the time, we don't know what we're doing. So, so if you don't know what we're doing, you're doing, then you're at home. And if church really isn't your thing, but you came today, I want you to know that there's, there's plenty of people in this room that not that long ago, church wasn't their thing either. As a matter of fact, Jesus wasn't even their thing not that long ago. But Jesus encountered them. And church and Jesus aren't the same thing, by the way. It's another sermon for another time. Um, not the same thing, but there's plenty of people here who are newer in that walk and following Jesus. So wherever you are in that journey, even if you don't know what you believe, uh, you're welcome here today. Now, we're going to look at a passage about Jesus' resurrection in the New Testament in the Gospel of John. Uh, the part of our Bibles that we call the New Testament has four stories that tell us about Jesus' life, written by four different people, four different eyewitnesses. And one of them uh, is Jesus' disciple, John, and we're going to look at his account of the resurrection because he was one of the people who saw the tomb empty. And so we're going to look at John chapter 19 and 20, and if you have no idea where that is in your Bible, um, or you don't have your Bible with you, it will be on the screen behind me. But you can get there, too, if you want to in your Bible or on your device. And I really feel like God has something specific to tell us today. Um, there's times that I know what I'm going to preach on long before I get to the time when I'm going to preach. And then there's times when I really don't have a sense of what I'm going to preach until closer up on it. And this was one of those times it was closer up on it. Like, we were days away from this service, and I was like, I still don't know what I'm preaching on. Until I was in a conversation with friends, a friend, and a phrase just dropped into my mind as I was having this conversation with a friend, and it was, pay attention to the clothes, the cloths that were left in the tomb. That's what popped into my head. Pay attention to the cloths that were left in the tomb. So that made me turn to this passage, John 19 and John 20. So I'm going to read this. It's going to be up on the screen, and I'm going to explain some things as I go along so you know what's happening here. But let me give you a little bit of context. Jesus, for about three years now, has traveled in his region of the world, in the Middle East, in modern-day Israel and Palestine, healing the sick, preaching a message of love, casting demons out of people. Um, and although he lived a perfect life, um, he ended up having people conspire against him. And so Jesus is arrested, and the first trial that happens, and it's the night before this passage that we're going to read, the first trial that happens, he appears before the religious leaders at the temple where people worshiped God. And many of these leaders were deeply threatened by Jesus, deeply jealous of Jesus, upset with him for a bunch of different reasons. It's interesting that many times the religious people were the last people to recognize who Jesus was. God in the flesh, and they were often the last people to be able to see it. So they put him on trial. It's an illegal trial. All these terrible things are said about Jesus. Actually, during that trial, he's beat some. But 
At this time, the nation of Israel is occupied by a foreign empire, the Roman Empire. And so this trial that happens, they don't have the authority to kill Jesus, but they do want Jesus killed. So they end up taking him to the Roman governor, a guy named Pilate. And Pilate interacts with Jesus. He ends up having Jesus whipped. And they bring Jesus back. And the religious leaders are demanding that this Roman governor kill him. And so under that pressure, he caves under that pressure. Even though he really can't see anything wrong with Jesus, he caves under the political pressure. And he ends up allowing Jesus to be crucified, this awful form of death that was physically excruciating and meant to strip someone of their dignity. And and where we're going to pick up is when Jesus is buried. You have to realize Jesus lived his life as a poor person. He was born poor and he died poor. He was born in a poor neighborhood, and he died as a poor man. And so what that meant was he didn't have, like, arrangements for his burial. It's not as if, like, all that stuff was set up for him. And so there's two individuals who end up arranging for Jesus' burial. It's a guy named Joseph and a guy named Nicodemus. Now, here's what you need to know about these two guys. They both themselves are religious leaders. As a matter of fact, it's very likely that they were at the first illegal trial that happened. That they were some of the political and religious leaders that were putting Jesus on trial that night. They were probably there for that. But as you're going to see in the passage, secretly, these two guys, I don't know what they said or did in that trial. I'll say more about that in a second. But secretly, these guys actually thought Jesus was the real deal. So after he's crucified, and they realize, and by the way, the Romans would never have like arranged for a burial of someone after they were crucified. These people who were crucified were viewed as the worst kind of criminals. So honestly, they just would have let the animals and the birds deal with the body. But these two guys are like, no, that's not going to work. We need to arrange for a burial. And this guy, Joseph, owns a tomb. Uh, maybe it was for his, maybe he had made his own arrangements as a wealthier person for himself someday. Um, and so they end up burying him. Now, that's where we're going to start. So John uh, 19, beginning in verse 38. It says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate, Pilate's the Roman governor, for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. One time, this guy, Nicodemus, you can read about it in John, had arranged for this secret, like, middle-of-the-night meeting with Jesus because he, too, was afraid of what people would think. But he was curious about who Jesus was. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrhs and aloes, about 75 pounds. Listen, 75 pounds of spices. I'm going to say more about this in a second. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. Now, what are they doing? They're not turning Jesus' body into like a mummy, like you see, like stories about Egypt and stuff. You know, the Egyptians, I, I don't mean for any of this to be graphic, but the Egyptians, you know, had figured out how to embalm bodies. And this is what we do in our context. 
uh, when we bury people. We pay the funeral home in part, if they're not getting cremated or whatever, we pay the funeral home to embalm the body. Well, in the ancient world, uh, the Egyptians had figured this out, and it was a complicated process. It, it involved, you know, removing some of the insides of the person and using different, you know, substances and wrapping it to, like, preserve this body. But that was not the Jewish custom. The Jewish custom was actually to let the body decompose, but that is such a smelly process. Is there any worse smell than death? Is there any, I was driving down the highway the other day, and my window happened to be open on one of these like two warm days we've had this spring, you know? And, and I must have passed something that was dying on the side because I just got that quick whiff. It's enough to turn your stomach, right? And so what they would do is they would take these spices, these fragrant spices, and they would wrap the body in cloth, these linens, and they would pack the spices into it to try to cover up that smell, right? And if you were poor, you really couldn't afford that kind of thing. Your family wouldn't be able to afford that kind of thing, but these guys are rich. Somehow they've made money off of their religious position. Somehow they've made money off of their political position, or they came from wealthy families. And so they have 75 pounds of spices that they bring. Probably servants had to help them carry it, right? And they pack 75 pounds worth of good-smelling things around this dead body, and they wrap the body in these clothes. And you're going to see later in the passage, Jesus' whole body is wrapped, and there's another piece of cloth that his head is wrapped with. Verse 41, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in that garden, a new tomb. We know from some of the other stories in the New Testament, this was Joseph's tomb, in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now let's go into chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Mary is one of Jesus' disciples. She's been following Jesus for some time, and she's going to the tomb to grieve, probably to apply more spices to care for the body. Um, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So this is odd. They had covered the, they covered the tomb with this stone. It was probably like a, it was, it was a walk-in kind of tomb, like a cave almost. And, and they had covered it with a stone, but now the stone is gone. Verse 2. So she came running to Simon Peter, who's another one of Jesus' disciples, and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. This is so tender and beautiful. Let me just point it out. John is the one writing this story, and all the way throughout the book of John, he refers to himself this way, the disciple that Jesus loved. Tell me that's not deep about identity, how he saw himself. This world is filled with so many messages of people and media trying to tell you who you are. It was no different in John's day. All these messages of people trying to tell him who he was, but he knew who he was. I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. His life was defined by the love of Jesus. So they go, uh, so Mary comes to them, the one that Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So grave robberies were really common in this period of history, in part because some of these bodies had these expensive spices and stuff 
like wrapped around them. So people would try to rob these graves, right? They would try to unwrap these bodies. I know that's low, you know? They'd try to unwrap these bodies and take the spices. What are you going to do with spices that were all packed around the dead body? I don't know. But if you're desperate enough, maybe you will. Verse 3. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So John reaches the tomb first. He bent over and looked in the tomb. Now, we're going to pay attention to these verses today. I'm not going to be before you very long. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. So Jesus' body is not there. All that's there are these strips of linen. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there. And it is very interesting that John thinks this is an important detail for us to know. As well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. So what they see are these strips of cloth that had wrapped his body into the spices. And then there's this other cloth that had been wrapped around his head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Now, we can't read too much into it, but it is if someone, we know who it was, Jesus, took this off of his head and, like, folded it up and set it there. All right? The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Guys, Jesus had been trying to tell them. Like, if you read this, like, he'd been trying to tell them for a long time. Like, and not, like, in mysterious ways. He was like, I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to come back to life. Like, he kept telling them it. They didn't understand. Verse 10, then the disciples went back to where they were staying. And the rest of the story plays out from there. Now, let's just think about these linens for a second. We could put up verses 5 and 6. I think I have it on a different slide. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. If we put together these details, and we may not be exactly right, but if we put together these details, I think something like this happened when Jesus rose from the dead. First of all, we get the sense from this passage that these long strips of cloth that Jesus had been wrapped in were, were like lying still in the shape of his body. Is the sense. It's still in strips. We get the sense. It's almost as if Jesus' body, when he rose from the dead, just passed through these strips somehow. And all of a sudden, he was standing alive. Now, that sounds really crazy, but actually there were testimonies of Jesus because, you know, there were so many eyewitnesses of Jesus. So many people with their own eyes saw Jesus rose from the dead. Um, As a matter of fact, there are way more witnesses about this historical event than there are about a lot of the things in our history books. Way more eyewitnesses surrounded this than a lot of the things that we assume are fact in our history books just based off of two or three witnesses. There were hundreds of people who saw Jesus rose from the dead Um, And so uh, some of those accounts have Jesus in his resurrected body, you know, because now he's risen from the dead. Somehow he's able to like, like there's this one story where all the disciples are eating together and Jesus just appears in the room. It's like he passes through the wall. It's weird, you know, but it's just like he just passes through the wall and it's all of a sudden in the room with them. And they're like, what is going on? They think he's a ghost, you know, all these different kinds of things. So we know that somehow Jesus' body had this ability. It's like he just passed through these cloths. But, but it seems to us like somehow his head was still wrapped up. 
And so it's like he took that off his head and folded it up and left it there. And then he walked out of the tomb. And just like that, conquered death. Passed through, took it off, left it there, and then walked out of the tomb. Now, here's where I want to make a point. I do think this is for some of you today. I was telling the Lord this morning, even if it's only for one person, I think there's a powerful word in this for somebody in this room. And so I just want to to give this to you. I want to point out something about Joseph and Nicodemus, these two guys who went to such great lengths to care for Jesus' dead body. Now, I want to be very clear. I don't want to dishonor these guys. As a matter of fact, their names are mentioned in the historical record probably because God is honoring them for the way that they cared for Jesus' body. And yet, they were there at Jesus' trial. And I do ask myself the question, did they say anything? They secretly believed, but they were so afraid of people and what people would think about them following Jesus. Did they keep their mouth silent in Jesus' most troubling hour? It makes me wonder if at the time when they decide to help Jesus, just because of their own issues, their own fear and stuff like that, if it was like too little, too late. And so they're generous, but they're generous in an interesting way. They're generous by investing in Jesus' death. They're willing to pay a lot of money to make his death smell better. 75 pounds of spices packed around his body. You know, it's interesting. We live in a culture, different cultures deal with death in different ways. We live in a culture that doesn't like to face death. And so this is something that we do too. We go to great lengths. We spend a lot of money. I'm not saying it's wrong. I understand why we do it. Death hurts. That's why we're celebrating like we do today. Death is painful, right? If you've been there and you've been grieving someone who you cared about and loved who passed away, you know that pain. It was never supposed to be this way. So death is painful. And so one of the ways that we deal with the pain is by trying to make it smell better. Is by trying to make it look better. We do and say all of these things so that we don't have to face what an awful thing it is. And I I don't know Joseph and Nicodemus had the chance to play another role in Jesus' story. But what I know is they show up in Jesus' story at the time that they're trying to make something as awful as death smell a little bit better. Now, if I can just, like, bring this down to earth for a little bit. You know what it reminds me of? I won't be too crude here. But it reminds me of um, bathroom spray. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? The last, the last uh, spray can we had in our bathroom, it, ha- it was called Ocean Breeze, you know? Ocean Breeze. And it had a picture, like a vacation scene on the front of it. And now sometimes I do feel that way when I'm on the toilet. You know what I mean? But, but it's not, but it's not, it's not quite, it's not quite vacation. You know what I'm saying? Hey, you got three young kids. You know what I'm saying? Like, you got three kids, sometimes that's your spot. You know what I mean? But I don't quite feel, I don't quite feel like the beach scene and the umbrella, you know, that's in the back. And somehow I'm supposed to spray some vacation. I won't get too, I won't get too graphic. I, is, there, is there an elder I can run this by before I say this? There's, there's, uh, we're trying to like spray some vacation on that like dookie smell. You know what I mean? <laughs> And so we're mixing, we're mixing these things together. And you know that no matter how good, 
no matter how good that spray is. And then there's the ones, listen, around Christmas, <laughs> this was so bad. <laughs> around Christmas, they were trying to sell one that like smelled like apple pie or something that showed up at our house. I'm like, that is not the vibe I'm going for. You know what I mean in that moment? I do not want to. It's like we're trying to cover this awful thing with this solution. Well, the smell of death is way worse than what I'm describing. A thousand times worse than what I'm describing. And 75 pounds of spices and trying to put it into a tomb that's in a beautiful garden and rolling a stone. All of it is just bathroom spray. That's all it is. It's just bathroom spray. And I'm not dishonoring what these guys did. I'm just here to tell you this morning that Jesus doesn't come to just bring us bathroom spray to cover our death. He comes to bring the dead to life, right? He doesn't come with just some sweet-smelling religion just to cover up what feels like death in your life and my life and in our communities. He comes to actually reverse the thing so that there's not any smell anyway. And as I think about Joseph and Nicodemus, I just had this thought come into my mind. These men who invested in making death smell a little bit better. When I talk about death, I'm talking about literal death. But I'm talking about all the other effects of death, too. I'm talking about all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the sickness, like Christine prayed, that ultimately lead to our death. All of that is what the scriptures call death. And it made me think that sometimes we actually invest in our own death. I'm not going to say much about that today. It's not my main point. But I think this one is for someone in the room that sometimes... The people around us invest in our own death, too. Sometimes the people around us, as well-meaning as they are, are just packing spices around our stink. We're just linked in to this cycle of death. And it might feel good or smell good. It might be a little spray of ocean breeze. But it does not take away what has happened here. That death is our problem. I was thinking about the different ways that this happens, the way we try and the people around us try to apply bathroom spray to the stink of death in our life. First of all, just ourselves. Sometimes we, sometimes we don't need people's help, right, to mess up things, right? And so sometimes we just invest in our own death. We invest in things that we think will make us feel better. We reach for experiences or people that we think will numb the pain. We go after the things that our culture tells us will give us significance. But in the end, it's just covering up the smell of our own spiritual death. It's just covering up the smell of our own physical death. And on some days, you may be able to spray enough ocean spray or cinnamon apple pie or whatever you use to try to cover that up. But eventually, that spray is going to dissipate. And you'll get a whiff, like I did on the highway that day. You'll get a whiff of just how bad death is. It's like deep down inside, we know this. It's why we go to such great lengths to cover it up, because death is what we are most afraid of. But sometimes there's people around us who go to great lengths to invest in making our death smell better. This is what Joseph and Nicodemus did. And again, I'm not putting them down. I'm not putting all these people down in your life either. They might actually love you. They might actually care about you. 
But I'm just saying all they have the power to do is spray some bathroom spray. They're not actually able to reverse your problem and my problem, which is death itself. And so I find all the time as a pastor that people end up depending on each other in these ways that feed into each other's death. Let me tell you like a really like poignant story of this, and I know this will hit really close to home for some of you because it's been your experience. But one time I was sitting uh, with a person who was talking to me about how their adult son was struggling with a drug addiction. Heartbreaking. He was crying to me and talking to me about this. And then there were some parts of the story I couldn't put together. And I said, tell me, tell me what's happening here. Like, I just asked a few more questions. And then sheepishly, she answered one of my questions and said, you know what, I'm actually the one that buys him the drugs. Now, why would a mom who is heartbroken over her kid's addiction do something like that? Well, some of you know why. Because you've been on either end of that. You know the pool. And I'm not saying this judgmentally. We've all done this to some degree. For her, it was like, I have this need to be a mom. I have this need to protect my kid. And in her mind, this thing had come into her mind that, well, at least if he uses and gets high here, I'll keep him safe. But listen, that way of thinking is just bathroom spray on a stink situation. Because people overdose in their own homes all the time. I don't have to tell you this. It's an illusion. It may feel like it's safer. It may feel like we're in control, but it's not. And then her son, who was having arguments with him, her all the time, was staying there too. Why, why would he be so miserable and, and stay there? Uh, well, it's because he needs a mom. It's because he, underneath all that addiction, has has a deep need to be loved and accepted. And for a lot of us, who loves and accepts us more than our mama, right? And so he knew that, and so he was, he was drawn to that, right? And he put himself in that, and he had this illusion that somehow this was all going to stay under control, but it's just bathroom spray on a terrible situation. It's just spices, Packed. It doesn't matter how much you spray. It doesn't matter if it's 75 pounds or 100 pounds or 150 pounds of spices that you pack around something like addiction. What we need is not for addiction to smell better or to feel better. We need someone who has the power to reverse addiction and death, right? That's what we need is someone who has that kind of power in their hands. Well, I'm telling you a story about someone else, but honestly, I've done this 100 times. And probably so have you. Like, we come close to other people's stories. Their mess interacts with our mess. Our mess interacts with their mess. And before you know it, we're just packing spices around a stinky situation. And what we need is actual life. Or if we can just think about this in a big picture way for a second. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. But I was thinking about how all of society, sometimes here at the Gospel Tab, We'll use this phrase empire. And by that, all we mean is the social systems, the government systems, the economies, 
that are always the media, always promising to us things. It's like, oh, we have 75 pounds of spices, or we have 100 pounds. The next politician comes along, it's like, we have 150 pounds of spices to pack around your death, right? We can really make it smell good. And they give things these nice names, and it just ends up robbing us. It doesn't take away from the, from the stink of things. I was thinking about how in the mid-90s, I don't want to say too much, but I was thinking about how in the mid-90s there was this celebrated piece of legislation in our country called the Federal Violent Crime Control Act. That sounds really good, doesn't it? Do any of us want violent crime in our communities? No. Do any of us want, you know, danger in our streets? No, it's not something we want. But without getting into the story, this, this one piece, this one law, has just ruined so many lives uh, because it ended up just locking up so many people for so many things that they didn't need to be locked up for. We didn't realize what our Congress, maybe they realized, I don't know. I don't think Congress fully realized what they were doing when they passed that law, but they ended up criminalizing our mental health issues. And instead of caring for people who had mental health issues, we ended up sending them to jail. We've been doing that for 20 or 30 years in this country. And some of you know because you're involved in that kind of work. But it sounded so good. It sounded like 75 pounds of spices packed around the problem. Bathroom spray on a problem. And it just shows that these promises, these things, even when it's well-intentioned, they don't end up serving us. Listen, last night I was in West Virginia for an event called Spring Beatings. It was a boxing event. I went with Jared. <laughs> It's what I did on my Saturday night before church. What did you do? Anyway, so, so uh, it was held at a former penitentiary. It was, <laughs> so that's where I was last night. And, uh, and we're in this, this town in West Virginia along the Ohio River Valley, like an hour away from here. I think about all the communities, all the communities of color, all the poor white communities in our river valleys who have promise after promise after promise given to them, it's just spices around death. It's just bathroom spray on death. That's the best that empire can give us. It comes to us promising all of these things. And in the end, we just find that we're still dead. But here's the good news I want to preach to your bad news today. That Jesus' resurrection life, what we've been singing about, shouting about, praying about today. Remember what I told you happened with these linens. Jesus' resurrection life passes through those things. Jesus' resurrection life sets death aside. He sets that head wrapping aside. And Jesus' resurrection life leaves death behind. I love that the way that Jesus ultimately conquers death isn't like, just with like some swipe of a sword or like something like that, he just walks away. He's just like, I don't need that anymore. I just walk out of there. I just walk out of that grave. I don't need more. That is strength that is stronger than any strength of people, right? He just walks away from it. And so I want to tell you today that Jesus, this Jesus that we sing about, that we're celebrating, wants to do more today on Easter than just make death smell better for you. He doesn't come with a spray can in his hand, right? Just to apply some, some fake fragrance to your issues. Instead, he first wants to pass through it. I'm suggesting today that 
if we are following Jesus and Jesus just walks away from death, then this is our privilege too. I'm saying that because he did it, we get to do it too. And so even some of the things that have been packed around your life, that have been sprayed on your life to, make, to try to make death smell better for you, I want to tell you today that somehow in the mystery of Jesus being raised from the dead, there is actually power just to pass through it. Like he passed through those guys. I don't even know how that happens. Jesus just called them up to life. Today, Jesus is calling some of you up to life through those things. But there is a part that I think we can cooperate with Jesus in as well, and it's this. Jesus set aside the things that weren't useful anymore because they're only useful for dead people. Cloths to wrap your head in a grave are only useful in a grave. They're only useful for dead people in a grave. Am I preaching to somebody today? Do you see where I'm going with this? I'm saying that the only place you would need something to cover your head in a grave is a grave. And if Jesus is calling you out of that grave, then you don't need that thing anymore. And I'm just wondering if there's some people in the room today who Jesus is calling to life, but you're still holding on to a head covering that's just for a tomb. And your life isn't going to be lived out in that tomb. Your future is not in that grave. There's some things that might have even been wrapped around you that might have been part of you that you might have used that aren't useful for you anymore. And I'm wondering if Jesus is asking some of us to just leave some things behind, to leave some emotions behind, to leave some practices behind. Why? Why? Because... You know, we might say, like, listen, that, that feels good to me. It makes me feel secure. It's, it's right. It's no, 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 no. That's only needed for a grave. And you don't live in a grave anymore, right? So it means that we can leave that stuff, that we don't have to depend on it anymore. One of my favorite stories I heard, I think I've shared it with some of you before. Uh, there's an author, pastor that I love. Her name is Ruth Haley Barton. And uh, I heard Ruth preach one time, and she told us a story about this monk who had lived a really violent life prior to his conversion. And he converted and goes into the monastery, and he's living a different kind of life, but under his robes that he wore as a monk, he still kept a gun on him. Why? Because he was dependent on that thing. That thing had gotten him out of some hard situations. That thing had protected him. That thing had given him security. Didn't make any sense because now he's living in a monastery. Hopefully no one's trying to take his life there, right? He's not in these dangerous situations anymore. But he still keeps this gun around his waist, under his robes. Nobody knows. He's saying his prayers. He's doing his work. He's doing all this stuff. But he still has this head wrap that he's still carrying around. And friends, I just feel like for some of us today, Jesus is like, no. See, I left my head wrap behind. So you don't have to carry yours anymore either, right? Some things are just so meant for the grave. They have no use outside of the grave that we have permission to leave them in the grave. We don't need to carry those things around anymore. And then, this is where I'm going to bring it home, Jesus just leaves death behind. He just walks away. I want you to know that if you follow Jesus, you'll leave death behind too. And here's the hard part. 
there's actually some people who all they know how to do, even with their best intentions, there are malicious people out there. I don't, that wasn't Joseph and Nicodemus. They're just given their best, which was to make death smell prettier. And some of us have those kinds of friends and family members and people in our lives. But all they know how to do is just make death smell better. And here's what Jesus does. I, I want you to know this, friends. The more that you follow Jesus... You don't have to attack those people. You don't. It's a waste of time. Because what are you going to do? Force them into life? What are you going to do? Bring your bathroom spray and say that it smells better? What are you going to do? Bring five more pounds of spices and pack it around their death and make it? Listen, whatever death you see in other people, they only need one thing. As a matter of fact, one person. And his name is Jesus. They need someone who can pass through the cloths of death, who can leave that behind. There's so much that we can't control. It is an illusion that we can control anybody. Have you ever tried to raise a preschooler? I have. (laughs) Let me tell you, you can't control anybody, all right? So it's an illusion. Like, what are we doing? So we can't do that. We can't control people. You know, meme culture right now, like a lot of the memes that you see popping up on social media are just like, just eliminate people out of your life. Like eliminate toxic people. Like this is like, let me tell you something. If we approach life with that kind of judgmentalism, um, we're going to have a problem because we don't want people applying that to us. Let me tell you something. I've been toxic. I've sometimes not lived up to my own standards. And I'm glad people didn't just like, want to, like, eliminate me. I'm certainly glad that God didn't want to, right? Um, so we can't do that, like, either. So, so what do we do? You can, you, seriously, you can't go through life just running from people who make you uncomfortable, who don't act the right way. You can't do it. So what do we do? Friends, because Jesus just walked out of a tomb into life, today you and I have the freedom just to follow him out of that tomb. It's as simple. And, and I, I feel like this is for some of you today. You need to know there's some people who aren't ready for that yet. There's some people who just want to live in tombs. They think that's all there is, like some cold stones, some darkness, some cloths, and some smelly spices. And they think that's life. But if you've experienced the resurrection life of Jesus, well, then you just know there's so much more. Like, he walks out into the world, right? And there's all of these things that he's calling us to. There's all of these things. His dreams for you and for me are so much greater than anything that we could ever imagine. Our imagination is so impoverished sometimes. Like, we think that all there is is this tomb that we've been hanging out in. Jesus is like, look, the stone was rolled away. You don't have to live in there anymore. You can take that thing off your head. You can let go of that gun. I'm not coming just to make it smell better. I'm coming to liberate you. I'm coming to bring you out of this. You can just follow me. If you really care about your friends, if you really care about your family, the best gift that you can give them is just to follow Jesus out of that tomb. To say, I can't participate in people just packing death around my life. I can't participate anymore 
with people just trying to like spray a good smell on my death. I need something better than that. So I'm going to follow this person who apparently conquered death, who apparently came to life. I'm going to follow him. And then you got to let Jesus deal with the people who just aren't there yet. But the best thing that you can give them is just to walk out of that tomb. And here's why. It's because you start living out there where the air is clear. I was talking to a friend on the way here. We're in the smallest ways. Some of you know this. It's your testimony. You start following Jesus in the smallest ways. Your attitudes begin to change about things. Your words begin to change about things. And it's not even you trying. It's just his presence in you. And one day, a lot of you have this testimony in this room. One day you wake up and you're like, I'm so different than I was a year ago. What is happening? It's the culmination of all of those little changes. Him just working in your life, shifting things, shifting attitudes, healing things. One day you wake up and you realize, I'm not the same person anymore. Please, whatever you do, don't just sit in the tomb and promise Jesus to be a better person or something. He doesn't believe you anyway. He, maybe more than us, is more in touch with the stink of death. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying just let him begin to transform, begin to change. And eventually it's like, hey, do you see what you're carrying? We hear his voice. Hey, do you see what you're carrying in, that, in your hand? Oh, yeah, what, what is this? Oh, it's what, it's what I cover my head with when I'm laying in a tomb. Yeah, you don't need that anymore. Just let that go. Just walk away from it. And so much of the victories in our lives don't have to do with these like, big, dramatic, sword, like swinging type of moments. It's just Jesus saying, just walk away from that. Just walk away. And it's crazy. We, we think that we couldn't walk away from it. But then we find that we're alive. That there's breath in our lungs. That there's choices that Jesus is laying out before us. That there's... And we find that somehow death is conquered just by us following him away from it, one step at a time. I think that is for someone in here today. I sense his presence, but can we just wait for a second? Can you just close your eyes? what's in my mind. Just keep your eyes closed. One of the things that Jesus said he was uniquely chosen by God to do. It was one of the things he claimed about himself. He claimed that he was uniquely chosen by God to give sight to the blind. Some of us have lived in a tomb for so long. Maybe you've had friends in there. Maybe you've had family in there, but they're just trying, maybe they're trying their best. But all they're doing is making your death smell better. And you know that you need something else. Some of us have been in that tomb so long that we have forgotten that we can see. 
that I just feel God's presence today to give sight to the blind. If you've been in darkness for a long time and then you walk outside and the sun hits your face, you know that there is some pain and discomfort in that. And some of you are in that place, squinting, trying to make sense of the world. There's some light hitting your eyes. Some of you, even in the last few weeks, have felt light begin to hit your eyes. It's like something is awakening in you, and you know it. God is doing something deeper in you, and you know it. But man, it's hard to make sense of it. It just mostly feels uncomfortable. But Jesus was uniquely chosen by God to give sight to the blind. So God, I pray that sight over every person sitting here. God, these relationships are complicated. People are well-meaning, but they end up just helping us cover up our own death. God, we need sight to be able to see. Lord, some of us have just invested in covering up our own death, like walking through life, just trying to make sure we don't sink too bad in public. <laughs> God, give us sight if that's us. Some of us still have a gun attached to our hip or, or grave clothes in our hand. And it's like we can't see that we don't need those things anymore. Lord, give sight to the blind. There's people in this room who have a calling on their life. Like you were meant for so much more than what you're experiencing right now. But you can't see it. God, give sight to the blind. And some of you are feeling things right now that scare you and you don't even know what's happening, but it's just the presence of God meeting you. Lord, show them who it is. Give sight to the blind. And somehow, Lord, out of our comfort with tombs, <laughs> our apathy and just sitting in a dark, cold place, not realizing that we can just walk away, we can just follow you. God, meet us there somehow and do something deep and significant in us this Easter. Give sight to the blind. In Jesus' name, we proclaim that. Sight to the blind. Now, I do believe we're going to mobilize some people. Uh, to be able to pray, and some of you may need to receive prayer today. Um, you're going to be free to go in just a minute, but some of you may need to take a risk in letting someone pray for you. This is really interesting because I feel like everything I'm saying is for people who have yet to form, uh, yet to start a relationship with Jesus, yet to step into that invitation, but it's also for those of us who already have. God is just always, wherever we are in the journey, he's always calling us from death to life, from death to life, from death to life, deeper and deeper out of that grave into his presence and life. And so some of you may need to take a step, and we'll create some space for that. Steve, if you could come close our service. Thanks, Joel. 
this journey into newness of life, the dream, the dreams that Jesus has for you and the calling on your life. Um, I have a word uh, that I believe I'm supposed to release this morning. It may seem a bit out of context. It may seem like, is he saying this because it's Easter? Um, <laughs> but I'm not. I just feel like God wants me to say it this morning. So I'm just being obedient to that. Um, I believe the Lord says there's grace for massive revival sweeping into Western PA and into the Ohio Valley region. The Lord is, uh, what the Lord is doing is raising up leaders and teams to go to various places, and he's showing them what to do and what season it is. He's raising them up now and in gathering many intercessors to pray for more grace for this to manifest and bring down identified strongholds and principalities. Today's in-gathering of intercessors for revival is tomorrow's in-gathering of a massive harvest in Western PA in the Ohio Valley. We're no longer in the 11th hour. It's time. The glory on the church will be so bright to those in darkness that they will come running to us. The favor of the, the, favor of the Lord will be on Christ's church so powerfully there will be an ease to ministry. Now is the time the spirit of grace and prayer is being poured out. It's a prayer and missions movement from the heart of God. It's the new modern missions movement. Pray for it. Wait for it. It won't delay, and it can't be stopped because of the character and the word of God. Today is a manifestation of that, right? And it really, the whole Christian life is, it's like we have this choice to make, like Joel said. We can lay down the linen. We can lay down the proverbial gun, right? And walk in newness of life into the next thing God has for us. And I believe the Lord is just doing that on a large level right now in his church here where we live. And so today is yet another opportunity for us in this context to step into that, as Joel said. So if prayer ministers can come forward, um, and uh, for those who want to receive prayer, please do so. Um, but he is risen. Go in his peace, go in his love, go in his fellowship, uh, but also stay if you feel that, like pull, like, um, you know, to what Joel talked about, and, and receive prayer. And uh, I believe the Lord wants to meet uh, many of us today in that. So bless you guys. You're dismissed.